Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tough Love Podcast. Today we have a very special human, Pam Sweetser. Thanks all for being here, and yeah, today should be really awesome. Pam, welcome. Hey, thank you guys for having me. This is very exciting. Yeah, so we know Pam. Pam is the founder and CEO of Heritage Camps for Adoptive Families. And we go way back. Pam's known Deontay basically his whole life, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Very long time. <laughs> yeah, and I got started with Heritage Camps back in 2018, I believe. And I've just been a fangirl since. So, <laughs> Pam, I'd love to hear... Seems longer than that. That's only... Seems longer than that. But maybe not. It does. It does. Maybe 2017. Maybe 2017. Yeah, maybe 2017. Well, um, I'd love to hear, I know you talk about this at the camps, but for the people listening who don't know about Heritage Camps, um, tell us a little bit about your journey, about how that was created for you. I know you have two adopted kids, but just this journey of literally creating, how many camps are there now? Nine. 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 Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. We've, you know, varied from one to, I think at one point we had 11 or 12 that and then they you know they kind of morphed into other camps like our Filipino camp was always very tiny so finally they joined Southeast Asian you know things like that our Cambodian camp ended because literally there's no adoptees at all from Cambodia anymore so um you know that's ebb and flow but nine's a pretty steady number and it started 31 years ago when um my family my daughter's dream and she was five and we got an you know, letter from our adoption agency here in Denver that they're doing this culture camp, they call it. And so we talked to people that we also adopted with and we all said, yeah, we should let's go. Let's go. Sure. Why not? And of course, you know, fell in love with it. And, um, you know, it was one of those memories of my five-year-old saying, there's another Lacey Moon. Her name's Lacey Moon. That's it. There's another one, you know, and there's another one. And there's another one. Like, look at all these kids who look like me. And I think even beyond that, it was that the families looked like her family, you know, and um, she wasn't used to that, right? So, um, she and she just glowed. It was so wonderful to see. Plus, it was really fun. The other, you know, it was so good for parents, you know, the other parents and, oh, wow, people kind of go into the same journey and, well, you know, we've we've been parents for five years and you've only been parents for two years or you've been parents for 10 years and, you know, learning from each other and all that was so great. So then the next year we went and our son, Sam, who was born in India, would say, I Korean, I Korean too. <laughs> We'd say, and my husband and I said, yeah, we pretty much better fix that. So then he doesn't think he's Korean his whole life. And I honestly think, you know, the reason he said that and thought that was because he felt you felt that camaraderie at Korean camp. Just even though he wasn't Korean, he knew that being an adopted child of color fit, but he mm -hmm. fit there, you know? And he actually, you know, he grew up loving that camp as much as his own, I think. Sometimes more, sometimes I think. But um, anyway, so we said, well, let's, let's do an Indian camp, you know? And I just called up the agency and they sort of rounded up some families who we'd never met and, you know, didn't really know them. And I remember sitting around our dining room table and sort of planning this little camp that we did at a Colorado Academy, which is a private school. 
that one of the moms was a teacher there. So we got that, that space, which was very nice. And we just went and did, I think it was one day, like a one day thing. And we thought, well, this is great. So we're going to keep this going. You know, um, the Korean camp was always at Stone Mountain Ranch. And the Indian camp, which is now called Indian Nepalese, um, moved up there like the second year. Because, you know, we just knew it was going to be a thing. And um, we loved it. And uh, that year, the lady, I'm sorry, the lady who um, started the Korean camp, called me and said, and she did that because she went to Camp Kimchi in Minnesota <laughs> and with her kids. And she said, you know, I bet we could do a camp like this in Colorado. And who wouldn't rather, no offense, spend summer in Colorado than in Minnesota? <laughs> you know, so sure enough. Uh, anyway, so we, and plus there were a lot of families here already because of that very strong agency at the time. They're long, no longer here, but um, they were, you know, just going gangbusters at the time with the Korean adoptees, adoptions and Indian. So anyway, she called and said, you know, my husband got transferred and we're moving to California. Do you want to just do the Korean camp? You know, kind of run the Korean camp too. It was all volunteer. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, somebody has to. And I had learned the second year, you know, some of the, you know, how to do programming a little bit and the procedures. And it was so different than it is now. It was really pretty basic. And um, luckily, we, we had um, some support from the Korean community, not as much as we have now, but we had a little bit, pl plenty from the Indian community. They, all, they always just jumped right in. And that's what makes our camps, I think, something um, from the very beginning. My understanding is we were <laughs> kind of unique because we wanted our kids to have their cultural mirrors in front of them from day one. And they didn't have very many, but we did try. That was what we wanted to do. That was the main focus because some of the other camps, you know, the parents did all the teaching and all the, you know, and I always have said, I don't want some white parent teaching a kid how to make kimchi. I just don't, you know, even though they might be the best kimchi maker in the world. I, I don't, I didn't want that, you know? So from the, from the very beginning, um, it was much harder to do, like I said, than it is now, but from the very beginning, that's how we started out. So then it was just like, I kind of thought those would be the two camps and I just kind of be a volunteer until I was done being a volunteer. And then all of a sudden a friend of mine who has a Korean son, but a Guatemalan daughter said, well, we need to do a camp for her. And then, you know, somebody else, there was another agency in town um, that was doing Vietnamese adoption and they called and said, well, can we do a camp? And it just kind of happened from there. Just, you know, either, parents or social workers or somebody would ask about another camp and within I think it was four five years I was getting a, a kind of a stipend like they give me a massage at a nice place <laughs> it's like well okay and um we decided we better become our own 501c3 so then we went through all of that and I'll never forget going to the secretary of state and the you know, the guy behind the counter said, oh, so you're starting a nonprofit. And I said, yeah, I guess I am. You know, I mean, I had no experience in this at all. Um, well, yeah, I guess I am. And he said, well, good luck. Those usually last about three years. And I said, that sounds good to me. That'd be great. <laughs> that would be three years. That'd be awesome. Okay. And, you know, 31 years later, here we are. But um, then, you know, just 
it just sort of happened that it became, you know, my, my life's work for lack of a better, it never was anything I anticipated, nothing I planned for, nothing I expected. Um, and it has become, you know, who I am, part of, part of who I am is those camps, you know, so totally unexpected thing that happens in life sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know how many families total have come to all of the camps? Thousands. Okay. Thousands. Yeah. 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 So many lives that have been. And And I mean, probably, I think we did kind of figure that out, like 7,000 kids or something. Wow. You know, through the 31 years. Yeah, that's That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Totally. Yeah, I really love, you know, heritage camps have changed my life for sure and changed how I view adoption and changed my life, my life's work as well. So I can, like, these camps are like, they're life changing. And I know that from a lot of the clients I work with and the families I work with where camp is home to them, even though it's Thursday night to Sunday, midday, camp is home for them. Yeah, it is. I agree. It's significant. And it's really beautiful to witness that. And I think what you said about your daughter being like, wow, they look like me and having that experience. I didn't get that growing up. And I still have some cultural identity race pieces for myself to figure out for sure. I know Deontay and I talk about this sometimes. And so it's nice to see it normalized and to see healthy adoptees, you know, who are like, yes, I am transracial and my parents look different and they can, they know how to walk that line in a more healthy way. Yeah, I I do. Yeah. And it's funny because I think the camps, well, I know the camps have evolved sort of with my kids, obviously. I mean, that's kind of, like, oh, all of a sudden they're in middle school and they're dealing with this and we better start dealing with that at camp. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's just funny how that happened. And then, and then of course, you know, talking to uh, my friends and other people that have kids their same age at camp and they're going through some of the same things. So we've learned to kind of evolve the camps and now we're moving into how to, how to, um, be a, of service, I guess, or, or home, continue to be home for adult adoptees post high school who maybe don't want to be counselors. You know, yeah, I uh, saw was be a counselor. Well, some people are like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to run around a bunch, a bunch of little kids all day, but camp is home. So we're trying to yeah. figure that out too. I really appreciate you speaking to how to um, make camp a home for adult adoptees who aren't really feeling being counselors because I know tons of um, adult uh, adoptees who are over 18 and want to still have that community and that camaraderie, but just don't have the feel for uh, working with kids. Yeah. So we're, we are, that's, you know, unfortunately we were, we were sort of on that path and then gee, the pandemic hit. So we were derailed for a couple of years and honestly this year, and it was so wonderful to see people, um, you know, be together again, but we were literally just, let's just get the ball rolling again. You know, so let's not delve into too much, you know, extra work or extra programming. Let's just, let's just make them happen again, which is what we did. But now that they have, you know, we need to get on that for sure. How did the pandemic impact 
heritage camps overall? Would you say? You well, I mean, families? we definitely took, we, we survived for sure, but it definitely had a financial impact. You know, two years of not um, getting program fees was rough. We survived and we'll be okay, but oof, that was tough. That was a little scary. Um, but it was mainly that, you know, when you guys did the virtual, it's not the same thing as camp. I mean, it was so funny because this year, I think it was at the CPI camp. I was sitting in the lobby of that assembly hall that we use. And it was like, it was almost like a, you know, like a slow motion movie or something with these two kid teenagers or probably young teenagers, two boys running from one side to the other. Oh my God, I didn't think you were going to be here. Boom, with this big hug. And one of them lifted the other. I mean, it was so wonderful. I can't believe you're here again. Well, yeah, of course I am. And it was just, you know, just to see that was absolutely amazing. And it's sort of the whole camp thing in a nutshell. And that was happening all the time, all summer long, at all the camps, you know, between parents, between kids. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And you just can't do that on, on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, you just can't. Hug yeah. each other and say, wow, I'm so glad you're here. You can't, I mean, you can do that, but you can't really, it's not the same feeling. But you know what? It got people, I, I feel like the best part of all that was that people knew we were still here. We're not going anywhere. We are still here. And, you know, we are um, going to be here for what, you know, I, I've been saying that when, when any adoptee forever that needs this experience, I want to be here for them. I want camps to be there for them. because there's a lot changing in international adoption. You know, like I said, Cambodia closed, Guatemala's closed. This is happening. You know, Ethiopia closed. This is happening. That's happening. Things are changing, but there are adoptees out in the world that some of them never been to camp. Some of them still need camp. And yeah, Deontay, they need camp for their whole lives, you know, and we, you know, we need to be there for them because that kind of experience where you're going to see each other and hug each other can still happen as an adult, you know? Uh-huh. No, definitely. And I think the people that know me the best aren't my, like, family. Um, it's definitely people that I've met through Heritage Camp, that, like, chosen family, the people that, like, showed up for me when I was uh, going out there for college uh, just time and time again. That was... Uh, all people from camp who became like chosen family. So I think um, because of that, college was very successful for me. I was able to um, get through like my mental health things that I went through. And I think, you know, that's what camp is all about is having those people in your lives to um, kind of be there for you and be that chosen family. That is so great. And it's true. And everybody loves you. So that's why. But, you know, that's a good feeling when you know there's people out there besides your, you know, immediate family or yeah, the yeah. people you grew up with, that there's this whole other community that means something to you, you know? Yeah, and, and vice, it's cool. And vice versa, because you mean something to them, too. Believe me, I yeah, know. It's cool to be fact. there for people, too. Um, I'll get text messages from Heritage Camp kids that are like, you know, they just need someone to talk to. And I'm like, oh, dude, you can always talk to me, you know? You know, it's I say because my son is 33 now. And is he really? Wow. He is. And sometimes when he has, you know, life like job issues or, you know, girlfriend issues or something, he will still reach out to his counselors, the people that are 
probably in the, well, they're in their forties now and they have kids or lives. I mean, you know, but some, for some reason he still can get a, he trusts them. He trusts them, you know, implicitly. So he'll still, when he, he'll still reach out rather than some of his own, you know, peers from high school and stuff will reach out to his yeah. mentors to get a little help and advice, which is cool. That's amazing. That really just speaks to how special camps are, for sure. What have you noticed over the 31 years has been like a constant need for families? If you could pinpoint that. Well, I think the constant need is what you said before, normalizing adoption, Mm -hmm. helping parents with the tools and the knowledge to raise an adopted child, whether they be of color or not. And then the the added, um, I mean, the addition of if they are of color, you know, how do we, as their white parents, you know, how do we be allies with them? How do we walk with them? How do we talk with them? You know, what do we need to be doing? So I think that's always been important. I think, Um, For the kids, it's all about, this is one place where I don't have to answer any questions. That's what I hear from day one. I heard over and over. Nobody, I don't have to, everybody just knows. Everybody just gets it. It's not, where did you come from? And and what are you? And how much did you cost? And, you know, you know, all those awful questions that kids get. You know, um, why, why did your mother, you know, leave you? And you know, all those awful questions mm-hmm. that I mean, they do get. They don't get any of that. There is a sense of, um, like I said about my daughter, there was this sense of, you know, just like a deep breath. These people get me, mm. and I don't have to try to be something else. I can just be myself, and that to me has been the constant that the kids need to feel that sense of being themselves. That's so important. I think adoptees often play this role of, uh, who am I? Like, it's a question, like, who am I? Where do I belong? Like, things I think a lot of times don't make a lot of sense to adoptees, especially transracial adoptees. And to have that home base, I think, like, I don't have to explain myself, I'm just understood. I think that is so incredibly important for all humans, but especially adoptees where there might be that piece of, oh, I wasn't loved, I'm unlovable, I'm not worthy of love, right? That's oh, yeah. happening in the so. background. Yeah, so that's really beautiful. You know, that attachment piece is always there. Just yes. uh, that abandonment piece. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there's sometimes, like I've said, like I've said before, I heard from a therapist, sometimes it's a little tiny coin purse Sometimes it's a giant carpet bag, but it is always with you as an adoptee. And I thought that was such a great description of abandonment. You can't, you can't just say it's not there. You know, the other interesting thing to you guys is at our Russian, Eastern European, Central Asian camp. When I first, we first did that camp, I thought, well, this will be interesting because these kids are all going to look kind of white. You know, first of all, they're not, it's very diverse, but um, uh, just, just in the different different uh, parts of Eastern Europe that they come from. They're definitely. 
And there's Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, they're very Asian looking. And so it is actually very diverse. But when I first went there, I thought, well, what are they going to, you know, how are they, how will they connect? Because it wasn't that, oh, look, he looks like me. She looks like me, is what I was thinking. And I thought, well, let's, let's see, you know, how this will go. And I'm not kidding you. It was like, boom, immediate. There was just the same sense of we are all in this together. We are all alike in some way. And that, you know, that connect, I was, I remember being so touched by that, that, you know, what, you know, being adopted is being adopted and also being from a, a region of the world is being from a region of the world. It doesn't matter what you look like, just boom, you're going to, you don't, you don't need that um, piece of it to connect. And the same thing happened at the domestic camp, you know, same thing. Those kids just connect. I mean, and, and, and what they, what their parents will tell me is one mom, I remember telling me that they went back to the hotel or something and, and the kids said, so, so are you telling me all these kids here are adopted? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm telling you. You know, I mean, he just could not believe it. She goes, well, you know, some of them are their siblings and maybe they're not adopted, but yeah, most of the kids are adopted just like you. And he's like, you couldn't believe there'd be that many people in the world that were adopted, you know? Mm-hmm. I love that. So That's the connection sweet. is there. Ado- I, always, I always say adoption is a culture under its own. Yeah. And those of us who are not adopt- adopted are out of it. <laughs> you know, not part of it. Mm-hmm. So parents need to learn about that too. Yeah, I'm really grateful to all of this new research on trauma attachment stuff but even just all the brain the brain stuff like court like high levels of cortisol in the womb and how that impacts humans not just adoptees across a lifespan and just really understanding that and when i was born um it was like oh like when you're so little you don't remember you don't remember being adopted it doesn't impact you and now that's we know that that's false, 100%. Not at all true. Not at all yeah. true. Yeah. Mm. So it's been really yeah. nice to see that, right? And how then we can be more understanding. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, like, as adoptees and people um, that are in the adoption community, we need to, like, constantly challenge that notion because I still uh, hear that type of rhetoric from people. Um, oh, so and so adopted a four month old. Oh, they're so um, lucky. That's great. Like, they're never going to remember. They're never going to have any issues or, like, oh, um Deontay you know you were x amount of years old or months old when you were adopted like that must have been like an easy transition for you or whatever that would look like right. however that rhetoric uh, presents itself you know my sister's adopted and my sister-in-law is adopted they were both babies I mean you know they, I don't I don't think they were I don't think it was like right out of the hospital or anything but close you know back in the olden days and um they both have all kinds of abandonment issues and all, so much of the same thing that my kids have. You know, they're both white, they're both adopted by white people all back in the day. And, you know, um, my parents were very open about my sister being adopted and we all knew. And so it's, and my um, Dan's parents were too, but his mother is also adopted. And um, so that was really in the olden days. And she was told one time by her mother that she was adopted and that was it. It was never discussed again. 
So it's funny because one year she and my sister-in-law came to Indian, I think it was either Indian or Korean camp, I can't remember which. And they disappeared for a lot. Like we were like, oh my God, did they go up in the mountain and they're like lost and I fell off a cliff or you know what? What happened? Where where are they? And they finally came back. And they had just gone, you know, drove up into the, you know, round over by the cabins at Snow Mountain Ranch and um parked the car and talked for the first time about being adopted and the impact. And it was, you know, being at camp was a catalyst for that, which was kind of amazing. And it had never been, I mean, they talked, they talked about it more than her mother and my mother-in-law's parents did, but it wasn't like a big topic all the time. And so they really talked it through. So I thought that was pretty amazing. That's beautiful. Yeah, I remember doing a panel once back in the day and there was this older gentleman. And I think when you get in front of the people, in, in your mind, you're like, I got this, I can talk about it. And then once you start being vulnerable in front of a crowd of um, probably like 80 people. This is LAHC Latin American. And yeah. um, I just remember him having this moment and I was like, yup, like being witnessed, yeah. having a place to talk about it, speaking your story. This is powerful stuff that we don't get an opportunity to talk about in our everyday life, especially if people around us don't understand or they think like, oh, that's not a trauma. Or like, oh, la la la, like, right. They just try to minimize it and not acknowledge it, which I think is one of the most damaging, hurtful things. Well, and that whole weird thing about, oh, you're, you know, to the kid, oh, you're so lucky. And to the parents, oh, thank you for saving. That is the worst thing. I could belt somebody when they say that to me. I mean, I get mm-hmm. so angry because they don't know what they're talking about, for one thing. For another thing, it's so not the way. I, I really get upset with when I hear the rhetoric about people who adopt because they do think they're saving someone. And, mm-hmm. well, you know, we, we just felt called to say, you know, I mean, I, I not, no, you know, I'm not trying to be disparaging about any kind of religion, but it is not what happens and it's not what should be happening. Right. Um, parents should not go into adoption thinking they're going to save someone because mm-hmm. it's so much more work than that. And really, you really think that taking them out of their culture out of their world and trying to make it all like rainbows and butterflies is going to save them, you know, and there's, you know, I hate to say if there's adoption agencies out there that kind of, they promote that, you know, so no, definitely just frosts me. It's just not, you know, having been an adoptive parent for 36 years, that is not the way it works. You know, just doesn't. Right. I think sometimes it's a really rude awakening for some for some parents. Very, yeah. They have Shocking. no idea. You totally. There's a lot of loss inside of that. There's grief inside of that. Nice. I thought it was going to be this way. It's this way. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of uh, work with Raise the Future. They're an adoption agency, mm-hmm. yeah. and they have this massive, massive platform for caregivers, for foster mm-hmm. parents, mm-hmm. foster to adopt, um, all like uh, social workers, etc. And they have this massive platform of just education. And I love that because they're not, on my end, it doesn't seem like they're not hiding anything. No, and they definitely don't do your saving the child thing at all. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been around longer than we have, I think. Yeah, they were called something (laughs) else before. I know. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of it, but I can't. I forgot. (laughs) It'll come to me after we hang up. 
Yeah, but they're great. So yeah, Raise the Future is really great. So those yes, listening, if you, they do a lot of free, oh, the adoption. The adoption exchange. exchange. That's right. Yeah. 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 So if you want, you can find them and they do free webinars and they're really, they're wonderful. Right. So, so Pam, this has been so great. It's so good to have you and, you know, you've changed you our lives um, for sure. And I know you've changed so many other families' lives. So I'm just really grateful for you. Um, how can people find you? What's the website? Um, what do you want to say about camps? Oh, or anything as we wrap up? Websites, uh, heritagecamps.org. Beautiful. Um, if you want to email me, it's info at heritagecamps.org or Pam at heritagecamps.org. That goes directly to me. So maybe use that one. Pam at heritagecamps.org. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we'll registration will open February 1st for next year's camps. And we are going to have some webinars um, coming up this year, hopefully still this year, next year for sure, you know, and, um, you know, getting back on that, because I also think that was helpful during the pandemic. I know it was during the pandemic, Um, but I think it'll continue to be helpful because those are, you know, we have a lot of connections out there with people that can, you know, like you have, you all have, you know, do have done webinars for us. We really bring panels and all that. So we really appreciate that because we need to keep the conversation going all year long. Definitely. definitely. You know, all year long. And that's definitely, I think I, I learned more of that. I guess that was an advantage of the pandemic. I learned more about that during that time that, you know, we have to keep people, we have to help, we have to help people all year long, not just those four days, you know, so we'll continue to do that kind of thing. For sure. Wonderful. But otherwise, you know, there's camps for all the camps, the domestic camps going to be in Estes Park next year, which will be awesome. Um, they all are either at Snow Mountain Ranch or Estes Park, except our Denver China camp will stay there. But um, yeah, so we'll be back in action stronger than ever. <laughs>